Well, good morning, Trailhead Church. We're going to be in the book of Genesis, looking at chapter 3 this morning. If you're using our Bibles, you can find that on page 2. Again, that is Genesis chapter 3. And if you're using the Black Bibles in front of you, you will find that on page 2. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves lengthwise. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, in the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground from out of it you were taken." For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living things. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, y'all. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor. Thanks for joining us as we continue our series entitled A Messy Little Christmas. Uh, Growing up, I I didn't have a lot of experience uh, celebrating Christmas. I was a Jehovah's Witness, and uh, as a Jehovah's Witness, we... We didn't do the whole Christmas thing. I mean, that just wasn't, wasn't a thing. We didn't do birthdays. We didn't do Christmas. Didn't salute the flag. Um, 
just all the joys, right? All the joys. And so uh, I grew up with impressions of what Christmas was without ever really experiencing it myself when I became a believer uh, as a teenager at 17 and then later got married at 20 and uh, started having kids in our early 20s. We started celebrating Christmas. I had certain perceptions about what it would be like, right? Now, they were pretty low-key perceptions. If you know Lauren and I, we're pretty low-key people. We're not, we're not huge party people. We're quiet people, and, and, um, and we like to do things simply. And, and, but that doesn't mean you don't have expectations, right? I, you get these pictures in your head, and you don't even know where they come from, but, but certain expectations, right? That Christmas is going to be this day full of, of food and friends and presents and family and and pretty soon it's kind of like this Norman Rockwell image in your mind where everyone's smiling and and glowing a little bit and 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 the kids are all just content and happily playing with their presence in the other room without any arguing or bickering and 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 the family's actually getting along and laughing with each other and not at each other and 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 everyone's just sharing joy right you guys ever watched the Netflix uh, show Nailed It? Are you familiar with this? So Nailed It is this funny show that uh, they basically take a, a Pinterest picture like dessert and then have amateur bakers try to recreate it. And uh, obviously with humorous results because the Pinterest picture always looks perfect and what they create looks like something poltergeist regurgitated, right? I mean, it's like it's not even not even close. And, and honestly, that's how Christmas often turns out. Uh, instead of being this merry little Christmas with Norman Rockwell type joy, it often becomes a messy little Christmas, right? For us, that was definitely the reality. Our Christmases had a lot of joy, no doubt about it. Our Christmases had a lot of joy, but man, our Christmases were a mess. Um, Instead of, instead of contagious laughter, right, we woke up in the morning and had the galloping grumps, you know what I'm saying? That spreads like the flu virus through the family. Pretty soon, everybody's just got it and, and, and reflecting it back to each other. And, and um, one of the great blessings of Lauren's family, they all live in the area, and that's awesome. But when the kids were little, that meant we did a lot of, you know, like you get up in the morning and you have breakfast here and you open some presents, you do some celebration, and then you pack everybody up. And then you go over here and you unpack everybody and you eat some more food and you do some more celebrating, you open some more presents, and then you pack everybody up and then you go over here and, and, and you do it all over again. And every single time you're like, all right, kids, let's be happy. Let's be joyful. Make sure you say thank you for your presents. And every single time you're like, okay, I got enough energy. I'm going to keep smiling, right? And you finally get to the end of the day and, and uh, looking forward to a romantic evening of relax. And, and the kids joyfully playing, and, and instead you're scrubbing peppermint smelling puke off the walls because your little angels were eating snacks at every stop that they weren't supposed to eat, right? This, this image of the merry little Christmas really does become messy. There's joy. There is joy, but there's pain, right? There's joy, but, but man, it can be a mess. And we celebrate Advent to remind us but there's a bigger story that makes sense of our story. There's a, there's a greater hope that, that both comforts our ability to hope, but also comforts our disappointed hopes. There, there is a, a greater peace that comes in and settles into our hearts even when the immediate peace that we wish we could be experiencing seems so elusive. And, and this morning, I want to talk about joy. So we've lit, we lit the, uh, the, the hope candle, and, and then we did the, the peace candle, which was last week. We talked about that. And this week, we, we lit the joy candle. 
And uh, joy is, is something that uh, we profoundly need. Um, joy is something that's very personal and private, can be, right? For some of you, the moments you feel joy are when you're most alone, uh, when there is nobody to bother you and nobody tugging on you, nobody needing anything from you and, and, and maybe a good book or a good sunset or, or whatever, right? But here's the thing we all know. True joy for it to flourish has to be shared. True joy for it to be flourished has to be something we share in community. Because when we share our joy with others, our joy is amplified in theirs, right? When we take joy in something and they take joy, our joy becomes richer, more complex, more more beautiful, right? Shared joy is the greatest joy. Now, here's the challenge, though. The community with which we share our greatest joy is often the same community with which we share our greatest pain. Our family is one of the greatest gifts God gives us. It is often the closest, most intimate form of human community because you, you know each other in ways nobody else knows you, right? You, you are known in ways that nobody else knows you. They know your history. They know what you were like in middle school. They, they remember your awkwardness. They know those stupid mistakes you made, right? You're the only ones who, who really understand how crazy your family actually is, right? You have this shared community, but because you're so close, these are also the people that can hurt you the most. Our, our families not only bring us our greatest joy, our families often also bring us our greatest pain. And they introduce into our hearts our greatest disappointment and often become uh, the pain that often becomes the barrier to joy. What I want to do this morning is unpack a little bit about why that is. We're looking at Genesis 3, which of course is the, the birth of everything that went wrong, and, and then talking about how Jesus breaks in to set it right. Okay, so I want to talk about uh, why it is the way it is, understand the dynamics that help create that, and then talk about how the grace of God disrupts that and invites us into something better. So let's talk again about our story, the context of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 at the very beginning of the story is, is the story, the beginning of all of our stories, right? They are the first uh, parents and they are the first sinners, and they are not the last of either, right? Um, they become a generational, like they, their, their kids become parents and they also become sinners, and, 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 and so they pass on this inheritance that we've all received. Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 sin against God. They were created to experience shalom, a rich Hebrew word that, that doesn't just mean lack of conflict, right? It's not about what's not there. It's more about what is there. It's a lack of conflict, but it's the presence of the fullness and flourishing of life. Right? It, it, everything in creation in Genesis 1 and 2 has its appropriate place, its appropriate function, and, and, and as we've described, it had a glorious hum. Every, every piece of creation created a different note, but those notes weren't in disharmony. Right? It wasn't a cacophony. It was a, it was a beautiful symphony in which there was a glorious hum to all of creation. Shalom. Everything had its place and its purpose, and everything was valued for what it was. And, and, and Adam and Eve were the, the, the stewards of all creation. They were created in the image of God to be the vice regents of God over everything else that was created. They were, in, in a sense, to be the, 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 or, the, the orchestra leader. What's the? Conductor. Conductor. Thank you. The conductor leading the symphony, right? They, they were called to, to drive the notes and to pull out the beauty. That was part of what it meant to, to image God. But instead of being good conductors, thank you, um, they brought chaos. Because instead of playing their role, they rejected it. 
and tried to play the role of God. Instead of being content being created in the image of God, they wanted to be like God. And because they wanted to be like God, they didn't trust God. God gave them one test in all of creation. Just don't eat from that tree, right? And we're like, well, why did he do that? Well, why not, right? Tested love is, is your untested love is, is, is not love. And, and so he gave them the opportunity to love and to trust. He's like, you got everything. Just don't eat from that one. So that became the opportunity for them, the test for them. Am I going to trust God or trust myself? Am I, am I going to, to humbly rely on God and walk in humble dependence on God? Or am I going to compete with God? And they chose. They chose to compete with God. They rejected shalom and, in fact, broke shalom. They destroyed the peace, that glorious hum that characterized the creation, and they set off a bomb of destruction, and that bomb has sent out shockwaves that we are still feeling today. The loss of shalom with God. We looked at that in the first week. The very first relationship that was disrupted because of their sin was their relationship with God, the source of life. Even though he was the source of life, they were now separated from him. And that left them with all these disordered desires because they were designed to find their fulfillment in his presence and the overflow of his goodness. But now they were separated from God, so they had to turn to the things that God made and ask those things to be for them what only God can be, to do for them what only God can do. And as a result, they lost hope because nothing could fulfill. Nothing could give them security or enough significance or or enough pleasure or or enough rest or, or enough love. And they were just driven and driven and driven and driven by these desires that could not be satisfied. And because they lost shalom with God, they lost shalom with themselves. We looked at this last week. They lost peace with themselves. They became their own enemy. Right? It was the birth of the inner critic, that voice that is continually critiquing and destroying because it was the birth of shame. There was a suddenly in creation, this, this awareness, I have something to hide. There's something I don't want to see about myself. And so I need you to not see it about me. So I will pretend and I will perform. I will hide behind my pretending and my performing so that you see something about me that I desperately wish were true about me. And if you see it and you believe it, maybe I'll believe it too. Hiding. Shame, loss of shalom with self. And because we lost shalom with self, that very obviously leads to a loss of shalom with others. If you have two people that are coming together that have lost shalom with themselves, they're not going to have it with each other, (laughs) right? If I've lost peace with me and you've lost peace with you, we're not going to come together and suddenly find peace with one another. It actually leads to a loss of shalom between you and every other human on earth. Take a look at chapter 3, verse 16. In chapter 3, verse 16, God is explaining to Adam and Eve the consequences of their rebellion. And he's speaking specifically to Eve in verse 16. He says, and to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. And in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. All right, there's a lot of debate about the specifics of this verse, right? When you get down onto the, the Google, Google street level view, you know, what, what, what do these exact details mean about gender and role? And, and I'm not going to get there. I don't even think that's what we need to, that's not where we're going to spend our time this morning. What I want to do is, is, is pan out a little bit so that we can focus on what we all agree on, which is this. What God is saying to Eve is that human relationships have now been disrupted. The relationships that were meant to bring you joy are not going to bring you pain. The relationships that were meant to be safe 
are not going to be dangerous. He highlighted the two most intimate relationships for Eve. There's no, no relationship more intimate than a mother and her child. I mean, you literally create the child in your body. They are, they are body of your body. They are breath of your breath. They have life because you nurtured it and you protected it. And it wasn't just the gestation. It was, it was the childhood. It was, it was you poured yourself out for this child. And he says there will be pain in childbirth. Now, of course, I think that is a descriptor of physical pain, but I think it's talking about way more than that. I think what he's saying is there's going to be pain in the relationship between a mother and child. What was meant to be marked by a joyful dance of discovery and growth is is now going to be marked by difficulty, struggle, and pain, right? Your, Your child is born into this world with a broken shalom just like you, which means your child is born into this world asking two profound questions. Am I loved? And the answer they assume is no. Same way, same answer you assume. That's the brokenness of shalom. And they're asking, can I be God? And the answer they assume is yes. <laughs> yeah, right? Which is why when, when, when they don't get their juicy cup in the exact way at the exact time they want, they call down all the fires of heaven on everything around them to destroy it because, because they want to be God and they desperately are afraid they're not loved. The brokenness of shalom in their hearts. And, and because you're shepherding and raising a child with the brokenness of shalom, it's not going to be a joyful dance. There's going to be a joy in it. There's also going to be pain and, and, and disappointment and sorrow. And what's, what makes it worse is it's not just your child that has broken shalom, it's you. <laughs> you're bringing you to that relationship. Your sense of entitlement. Your, your disordered desires, your, your need to, to be first, your need to, to have it the way you want it, your fear that, that I'm not loved, your desperate desire to be God. That's not a recipe for a joyful dance of love. That's a recipe for a lot of pain and difficulty and struggle, joy and pain. Right? And then with the husband, she's like, God says, your desire is going to be for him and he will rule over you. What was meant to be the safest place for her, her relationship with her husband, where she could be completely vulnerable and honest and still be protected, where she could be, she could be um, loved and known without any need to pretend or perform, no competition, no fear of outside influences, no, no fear of betrayal, no fear of rejection, no fear of abandonment, no fear of, 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 of not being found worthy or, or, or instead is now marked by competition. Instead of community, you find competition. Instead of two people, who, who are humbly, joyfully revolving around the other person, right? The husband revolving around the wife saying, saying I, I'm going to live for you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide myself for you. I'm going to do everything I can for your joy because your joy is my joy. And for her to look at the husband and say the same thing, a mutuality of self-giving, a mutuality of, of revolving around one another. Instead, you have two people that desperately want the world to revolve around them. And they're showing up and saying, why aren't you doing the same? Why aren't you meeting my needs? Why aren't you making me happy? What was meant to be a beautiful dance of interdependence becomes a power struggle. 
Who gets to get what they want? Who, who gets to be first? Who gets to who? Disruption in the closest, most intimate form of human relationship. I don't think this is just about women. I don't think this is just about Adam and Eve. It's about humanity. As God is explaining the consequences of the rebellion against him, even though he explains specifically to Eve this concept, it affects everybody. In the same way what he explains to Adam affects everybody. Okay, uh, Everybody has felt the loss of shalom with others, and as a result, every single one of us struggles with intimacy. Every single one of us feels pain in our relationships. The loss of shalom with God led to a loss of shalom with ourselves. And because we bring to our relationships a loss of shalom with ourselves, we will experience a loss of shalom with others. There are two powerful case studies right here, bookending this story. Take a look at the beginning of chapter 3, when when Adam and Eve uh, have this interesting encounter with God in verses 9 through 13. Um, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Remember when God asks a question, it's not because he needs to know something, it's because we need to know something. He's inviting Adam and Eve into honesty and humility. And And Adam said, when I heard the sound of you in the garden, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? Again, he already knows. And Adam said, the man said, the woman who you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, well, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's a pretty simple question, right? Did you eat of the tree? There's really a one-word answer that works, right? What's that one word? Yeah. Uh-huh. Did you eat of the tree? Yes. Even better if that answer is given in, in, in a, a humble sorrowful repentance, like, yeah, God, I did that thing you told me not to do. Yeah, right? But they can't give a humble, honest, vulnerable response. They have something to hide now. Because they have something to hide, they need someone to hide behind. That's what blame shifting is all about. I need you to be worse than me so that your shame can cover mine. So Adam, did you eat of the tree? That woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit. And I ate. What's going on there? Who's he blaming? Eve? Who else? God. Anybody but himself. Right? You come to Eve and Eve in this unique dynamic can't blame her husband. So she blames the snake. The snake did it. Blame shifting. It becomes a competition to find out who can, who, can, who can throw somebody under the bus so that you don't end up under the bus, right? That's what blame shifting is all about. You end up in a conflict. You don't want to be exposed, so you expose the shame of someone else so you can hide your shame behind theirs. 
Doesn't that, doesn't that describe everything happening in the political world today? <laughs> I mean, it really is. What are you trying to expose that about me? Well, what about them? And what about them? And isn't that? And what about that? And what about, I'll hide my shame behind their shame. And if I can hide my shame behind their shame, my shame's not exposed. That doesn't just describe politics. It describes our friendships. It describes our relationships. It describes our marriages. It describes our parenting. Here's the thing. Um, when we bring our shame into the relationship, it influences everything we do in that relationship. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Take a look at the other case study I want you to see in chapter 4, the bookend, the other side of this story. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Um, yeah, Genesis 4. Um, now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, her firstborn son, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, which is kind of a funny way of saying, I delight in my son. So, so she takes delight in her son. And again, she bore his brother Abel. So she, she's got these two sons, and she loves her sons. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. He was a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Now, we don't, we don't know if that's because he had previously told them to come to me, you need animal sacrifice. We don't know. We don't know. What we do know is that in this moment, somehow it's clear to both Cain and Abel that God preferred one offering over the other, that, that he, he, he had a preference, that he regarded one over the other. So what happens? Cain, the end of verse 5, was very angry, and his face fell. Cain feels exposed. Cain feels vulnerable. He's come with his best, and his best wasn't good enough. His best wasn't received. So he feels like his shame is exposed. He feels like he's being disrespected. He, he, feels, he feels like, like, like God has, has abandoned him and let him down. And his brother has outshone him. He was angry and his face fell. He felt resentment and shame. And then God meets him in that place. Man, God even shows up trying to coach him through it. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will it not be accepted? Come on, man. You aren't rejected. This isn't the end. We're going to keep moving forward. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. Man, don't let this thing that is growing in your heart consume you. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Again, he already knows. He doesn't ask questions to find anything out. He's inviting Cain to find something out. And what does Cain say? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? What's going on here? 
First murder. I mean, think, I can't help but think about how this must have impacted Eve's heart. Eve knew what it was to live in shalom. She knew what it was to live in the glorious home of creation. She knew what it was to be in deep, intimate connection and to know, to, to know what it is to be valued and loved and seen and, and protected and then to see her sons rise up against one another. must have crushed her heart. Why did it happen? I mean, think about it, y'all. They lived in a world of limitless resources. They lived in a world of unlimited possibility. There were no borders boundering them in. There were no haves and have-nots. There, weren't, there were no systems already created that oppressed some and lifted others up. These guys could do whatever they wanted, create whatever they wanted, go wherever they wanted. What motivation could there possibly be that would lead one to rise up and murder the other. The same motivation that drives us to do it today. Shalom. Cain didn't have shalom. He had shame. And because he had shame, shame always drives us to do the same thing, right? Shame always drives us to hide. Fig leaves, bushes, murder. Well, how's that hiding? If I silence your voice, I don't have to listen to it anymore. See, Cain was hearing something from Abel he didn't want to hear. Now, is there any indication Abel was actually saying it? Was there any indication that Abel was taunting Cain? That he was teasing Cain? That he was disrespecting Cain? That he was, that he was lifting himself up? I mean, obviously, I don't think so, because, because when Cain speaks to Abel, Abel follows him out into the field. Like, he doesn't know anything's wrong. He puts himself in a vulnerable position where he's exposed and Cain can rise up against him and kill him. See, there's something going on here that psychologists call a suicide. A suicide is when we assume what the other person is thinking and then hear everything we think they're thinking. Does that make sense? A suicide? So if I decide you disrespect me, you're going to be like, where are we going to go to dinner? And I'm going to hear... Why didn't you pick some place to go to dinner earlier? You, you catch what I'm saying? Like, like you might say, um, uh, hey, I'm going to take out the trash. I'll be right up. And what I hear is, why didn't you take out the trash earlier? Right? A suicide is when I hear what I've already decided you're going to say. I fill your words with my shame. I project on you all the things I despise about me. And I hear in your words everything I don't want to hear, even if you're not saying it. It has nothing to do with what you're actually saying. I'm hearing what I've already decided I'm going to hear. This is confirmation bias. Right? What this means is I've already decided what I'm going to hear. I then hear it, and that confirms my bias. And ironically, we always hear what we expect to hear. (laughs) Unless. There's only one thing that disrupts that, and that's love, but we'll talk about that in a minute. A suicide. Cain committed a suicide, and therefore he committed homicide. He heard in Abel's words a confirmation of his lack of respectability. He heard, I'm not respected. I'm not independent. I'm not strong. I'm not valued. I'm not important. You think you're better than me. And in his shame, his way of hiding was to silence the voice that made him feel exposed. 
We do the same thing when we, when we rise up against somebody and silence them by raising our voice. When we're in a conversation and we feel that anger rising up and the anger rises up and our face drops down, we're feeling resentment and shame and we basically rise up to kill their voice because in their voice we hear everything we despise about ourselves. But here's the thing, we externalize it. Because this whole thing is so deceptive, the whole hiding thing it isn't, isn't this conscious choice that I make. I'm going to take my true self and put it away over here, and I'm going to put this false front over here, and I'm aware I'm doing it, and I'm paying attention to it. Our greatest goal is to deceive ourselves into thinking that this idealized version of ourselves really is us. The person we're trying to fool more than anyone else in the world is us. And because we're so desperate to fool ourselves, we externalize on others all the things we despise about ourselves, and then we go about dismantling it and destroying it in them. We abuse them, we silence them, we marginalize them, we ridicule them, we mock them, we power up against them, or we run away from them, all in an attempt to get away from ourselves. Cain rose up against Abel because Abel was to him the embodiment of everything he despised about himself, everything he was afraid of about himself. Both of these stories reveal why things are the way they are. We live in a world where human injustice against other humans is commonplace, it is normal. We hear about violence. We, we, we see people with power mocking and ridiculing people without power. We, we, see, we see people creating systems that favor and value some over others. We, we see people dehumanizing those that they disagree with because they can't stand to actually see their humanity. They project their fear on them so much that, that when you look at the, I mean, it's funny when you look at like the World War II propaganda posters and you're like, they, they picture people from, from East Asia in, in, in subhuman forms. And we look at that and go, that's so propagandic. And we do the same exact thing today. We take our enemies and we, we, we remove them from the realm of humanity so that we feel justified in despising them and hating them and looking down on them. And what we never pay attention to is the fact that everything we say about them doesn't define them. It defines us. Everything we're saying about them is coming out of here. We're revealing ourselves as we mock and diminish and attack others. We're revealing our fear. We're revealing our shame. We're revealing our, 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 our self-despising, our fear that we're not significant or important or secure or, 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 or unique or, or seen or known or valued or loved. When I fail, I blame you. When you don't give me what I want, I manipulate you. When you don't live up to my God-sized expectations, I shame you. 
when you seem to have what I don't. I fear you, and I'm jealous of you. When you tell me things I don't want to hear, I silence you. I either rise up against you or I run away from you. This is the pattern of the brokenness, the shock wave that affects us all. And we're running around blaming each other in our marriages, in our families, in our communities, in our politics. And because of that, we experience the death of joy. Because joy comes from mutual love. From, from revolving around each other and loving one another and sharing this great gift of love. So that's the bad news. Genesis 3 is all bad news. I think we've already seen that. Uh, that's the bad news. And it explains, right? We look at that and it's like, okay, that helps me understand why bad people do bad things and why so much evil has been let loose into the world. But of course, the bad news sets the stage for the good news, which is what Advent is all about. See, Advent is the season in which we focus on the first coming of Christ and awaken our desire for the second coming of Christ. As those who who have suffered the shockwaves of the blast of sin and who are suffering still and bringing suffering into the world as, as children of Adam and Eve. But our hope is renewed because we have a Savior. One who stepped into that blast, who was born to step into that blast. Right? Jesus was born And he lived a life of perfect shalom, shalom with his father. He never violated his relationship with his father. He walked in humble dependence on God, his father, always doing exactly what the father would will, always leaning on God for his his affirmation and his security and his direction, never rebelling against God or fighting against God or chafing against God, but leaning joyfully, even when it was painful, into his relationship with his father. He had perfect shalom with his father, and he had perfect shalom with himself. He was, of all men, most comfortable in his own skin, which is really ironic because he was God in a body, right? He was God-made man. And yet in his humanity, he was perfectly comfortable in his humanity. He didn't chafe against his very self because he had integrity. I don't mean honesty. I mean everything was perfectly aligned within him for the same purpose of walking in humble dependence on God and finding joy in the overflow of the goodness of God, which led him then to have perfect shalom with everybody around him. He, he, he had conflict when it was appropriate to have conflict. He brought comfort when it was appropriate to find comfort. He did not bow in fear to any man, nor did he seek the approval of any power of man, nor did he run from any need of man. He walked in perfect shalom in a world of broken shalom. In other words, he lived the life we were supposed to live. And then he died the death we deserved to die. This perfect son of God on the cross became the embodiment of our guilt and bore the penalty of our cosmic treason, was covered in our shame, And I can't explain it, and I don't know how. But he who knew no sin became sin for us. The God of Shalom experienced the lack of Shalom. 
willingly as a love offering that he might absorb the blast and having absorbed the blast and paid the price he might rise again and in rising again he might let off a new bomb a bomb of resurrection a bomb of love a bomb of grace that would undo everything that had been done and recreate everything that had been destroyed a bomb that could once again restore shalom between God and man man and himself and man and his neighbor And as those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the inheritance, the broken inheritance of our first parents, but we also now have the power of the resurrection of Christ. We have grace. And there's nothing that can disrupt the lack of shalom and the cycle of destruction except grace. Grace can undo what has been done. Grace can remake what has been broken. Grace can bring us back to the place we long to be. Christ has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. With the birth of Christ, we once again have the birth of joy. Because we can relate to one another now, not based on our shame but based on his love. It disrupts and changes everything. Jesus said if we drank of grace, we'd even love our enemies. Isn't that crazy? In our sin, we turn our loved ones into enemies. And in grace, we turn our enemies into loved ones. That's how powerful it is. So how does this work out practically? What does this look like for us, right? You're like, dude, that's all great. I get the theory. Wonderful, okay? I have to have dinner with my drunk uncle next week. So, so what does this look like around the table? What does this look like when, when they start bringing up politics? What happens when, when they start pushing on the fact that I'm still single and not married? What happens when I feel shamed because I didn't, I didn't go to this college or I didn't do this? What, how does it play out in real life? All right, so let me give you three things to wrap up three things that I think will help you live out of the power of the resurrection in the face of the loss of shalom in the world, right? In other words, we're going to step into the brokenness with the healingness of the work of Christ, first of all. Ground yourself in gratitude. Ground yourself in gratitude. Like literally, ground yourself in gratitude. Give thanks until you're actually feeling grateful. Right? You following what I'm saying? Don't just, don't just go through the motions of giving thanks. Give thanks until you actually become grateful. When you feel grateful, that is a profound place of humility and joy. When you're actually overwhelmed by love, you're actually overwhelmed by the goodness of a gift, you're actually overwhelmed, right? You're, you are humbled by the gift and you take joy in the giver. Ground yourself in gratitude. Listen, conflict is unavoidable. I think even in the perfect world, conflict is unavoidable. Because there would be times where there would be a problem and two people would come together with two different solutions, right? But what happens when you're operating in a place of grace is that conflict doesn't become your enemy. It becomes an opportunity to to understand each other and to explore how to work together and, and we come up with a better solution. Instead of bringing my shame, which says, if you don't go with me, I'm covered and I'm rejected. I'm covered in shame and I'm rejected and I'm not good enough. Instead, we're coming with a common goal of love. How can I honor you? How can I love you? How can we actually get to where we want to go? Conflict, conflict's not an enemy. Conflict can actually become a source of real growth. Conflict can be really, really, really good. 
as long as it's not toxic conflict. Toxic conflict is never good. Toxic conflict isn't about finding the right solution. Toxic conflict is about being right. It's not about moving into a shared experience of love. It's about winning. It's not about honoring and valuing you. It's about protecting and preserving me. Toxic conflict is when I bring my shame into that conflict and I need you to cover my shame by telling me what I need to hear or suffering in ways that makes me feel like you don't see my shame anymore. I saw an interesting stat this week. Kind of took me by surprise. I have no idea how they came up with it. How do you do this kind of study? No idea. But they said seven out of ten conflicts have no right answer. Seven out of ten fights that you have. There's no right answer. Then why are you fighting? Like literally, why are you, there's no right answer. Any answer will do. As long as you agree on it. Then why are we fighting? Because it was never about the answer to begin with. It was about my shame. And if I don't feel seen, I don't feel valued. And if I don't feel heard, I I don't feel respected. And if I don't get my way, I don't feel significant. And so in conflict, I rise up against you. That's toxic conflict. I rise up against you in order to protect me. You're like, "I I don't rise up against anyone, Steve. I just do what everybody wants. Yeah, that, that, that's pretty toxic too. <laughs> because what you're doing is you're withholding yourself from relationship. Right? You're not bringing your strength to the table. You're, listen, when we ground ourselves in gratitude, what it does is it equips us to move into conflict in a healthy way. Instead of moving in clothed in, in entitlement and self-pity, bitterness and resentment, we're coming in in a place of humble joy. Totally different mindset. You're bringing a different person to the conversation when you are grounded in, in, in gratitude, right? And instead of coming in self-pity, you're coming with gratitude, right? You know what self-pity is, right? Self-pity is that sense of entitlement. You don't give me what I want. You don't give me what I deserve. You never meet my needs. You never give me what I actually ask for. It's entitlement and it's resentment. It's all your fault. You did this. See, self-pity is actually falling into a pit of self. That's what self-pity is. It's falling into a pit of self. And you know what you see in the pit of self? All the ways you've been wronged and have been offended. When you're in the pit of self, everywhere you turn, you didn't live up to my expectation there. You failed me there. You said a rude thing to me there. You didn't notice something kind I did there. You didn't give me the credit I deserved there. You disrespected me there. See, when you're in the pit of self, you're surrounded by the walls of entitlement and resentment. Everywhere you turn, you're going to commit a suicide because you're going to assume you already know their every motivation and their desires because you think they're putting on you all the things you're feeling about yourself. And you know how you get into the pit of self, right? You get there by talking yourself into it. You get those conversations going in your head where you're having an argument with somebody who's not actually in your head with you. You ever done that? 
right? You're just having this non-stop, never-ending argument with this person and they're never there, right? And you come up with the perfect zingers. Man, I wish I had thought of that two days ago, right? That would have really stung. That would have been really good. That would have really... That's self-destruction that leads to the destruction of your relationships. You disrupt that cycle with grace. Give thanks until you actually feel grateful. You can't be full of self-pity and gratitude at the same time. You can't. And you have to fight to feel grateful. Because the loss of Siloam, your internal sin, is going to continually tempt you to slide back into the pit of self. It's going to feel so justified. It's going to feel so right. It's going to feel like there's some kind of power in it, like self-protection. Like, man, if I just slide into this pit and I build this resentment, then I'll protect myself from pain. And what you're doing is you're actually immersing yourself in the very pain you're trying to escape. Grace frees you from the insanity. Give thanks. Yeah, but Steve, you don't know how bad my relationship is. How am I supposed to give thanks in this relationship? Start where you can start. I always recommend starting with the gospel. As a follower of Christ, there is nothing that has the power to awaken within you gratitude like the loving sacrifice of God. That you had a God who loved you so much he sent his son to die for you. To live the life you should have lived and then die the death you deserve to die. To solve your greatest problem, to pay your greatest debt, and to give you your greatest blessing. If that can't awake within your soul gratitude, you need to ask if you you really believe it. Because if you're not humbled by that gift and you're not, you don't take joy in the love of that giver, I'm, you just need to push in and ask, do I really believe this stuff? Start there. And then go from there. From the God who loves you to the gifts that God has given you. And then what ends up happening is instead of turning and everywhere you look, seeing resentment and entitlement and failure, and, and you start turning, you start seeing, I can be grateful for this, and I can be grateful for this, and I can be grateful for this, and I can be grateful for this. And when you bring that gratitude into your conflict, it changes you. And when it changes you, it changes your conflict. Because the conflict isn't about finding the right answer. It, it isn't. The conflict, the toxic conflict, comes from you bringing your shame to the table. So, root yourself in gratitude. Secondly, listen to understand. Once you've rooted yourself, if you don't take that first step, you're not going to be able to take the second. (laughs) If you're not rooted in gratitude, if you're coming to the table full of of entitlement and resentment and self-pity, you're not going to listen to understand. You're going to commit a suicide. You're going to hear all the things you expect to hear. And you're going to put your meaning in all of their words. You ever done that? Like, I, there have been times Lauren and I would have like a really intense debate. And at the end of it, I would say, you said this. And she's like, Steve, I never said that. Like, those were not my words. And then when she reset her words, I'm like, oh, that's not what I heard. <laughs> Listen, You need to listen to understand, not to reply, 
not to, not to, to have a rebuttal, not, not to, to diminish, not to, not to make sure you, you don't sit down thinking you're going to tell me all these things and I hate listening to them, so I'm going to. No, listen to understand. Actually practice reflective listening, which I know drives some of you nuts, but it's really helpful. You know what reflective listening is, right? It's when you look at somebody and you say to them, what I'm hearing you say is, am I right? What I think you're saying is, am I representing you correctly? See, that does two very, very powerful things. It puts you in a position where you're actually trying to understand. That kills a suicide. That gets that out of the way. And then secondly, what does that do to the person who's talking to you? How do you feel when somebody really wants to hear you? How do you feel when somebody really wants to understand what you're saying? What does that do to your heart? It demilitarizes it. It makes you feel safer, which allows you to be more vulnerable and honest in the moment. You're giving them the gift of grace. You've received grace, now you're giving them grace. And in giving them grace by actually listening to them, you're creating a space where they feel seen and known and heard. And I'm going to tell you, there's going to be a piece of you that rises up and says, why should I give them that when they're not giving it to me? Why should I listen to them when they're not listening to me? Uh, Whose voice is that? It's not God's, and it's not grace. That, once again, is a temptation to slide back into the pit of self and to justify your sin and to project on them all of your shame and inadequacy. Give them the gift of listening because it's a gift to you too. Now, here's the thing. When you're in toxic conflict, it takes a while to to break up that cycle. So in the beginning... You may have to give them that gift over and over and over again without ever having received the gift back yourself. There may be a season where you have to show up and listen without being given the opportunity to speak. That's still the best place to be because it is only grace that can disrupt that cycle. You're not being diminished by not being able to speak. Now, should you have a voice? Yes. Does that mean that you should just think whatever they tell you to think? Not a chance. But it does mean sometimes to break disruptive cycles of conflict, you need to have somebody who's going to lead in grace. And what you need to realize is the one who's leading in grace is always in the position of power. The one who's leading in grace is always in the position of power. They're not being abused when they do that. They're exercising personal power of love and grace. And inviting the other person back into a safe place of love and grace. Listen. Listen. And then, as you're given opportunity, express yourself in love. Express yourself in love. When you're given opportunity, so you receive grace, you give grace. And when you're given opportunity to respond, express yourself in love. In other words, don't formulate arguments to defeat them. Don't carefully craft your words to shame them. 
Don't come up with examples that disempower them or silence them. Try to create a space in which not only do you get to communicate your idea, but the primary thing you're communicating is I love you. Remember, seven out of ten conflicts don't have a right answer, which means the only right answer is love. That's how you solve the conflict. The primary thing they need to hear is that you have grace for them and that you love them. And in creating a safe space of love for them, what you're going to do is create a safe space where once again you can see each other, revolve around each other, hear each other, honor each other. That's the solution. You just solved the conflict. Now you just have a problem to solve, right? And you can do that in love and in joy, in a give and take with, with okay, I can do this and we can do that. And you can, it's the, it's the toxic element of shame in my sin that destroys our ability to get there. So express yourself in love. I, I want to close with one thing here. There are times, what I'm talking about here is normal, healthy conflict, which can be really ugly and painful. There are times that there are certain forms of conflict that are so toxic that they need an outside source to help disrupt them. When a marriage relationship becomes abusive, when a parenting relationship becomes abusive, there often has to be intervention because the abuser is so locked in their shame and it becomes so blind to the pain that they give that they become, in a sense, addicted to it and they don't know how to let it go and they won't without an outside source actually helping them work through that process. Now, here's what's interesting is I've walked with people coming out of those situations. I have walked with women that were coming out of abusive marital relationships. These are the same exact points of advice I give them. And I... I, I've seen abusive guys go crazy because they recognize their wives are growing strong when this happens. When their wife shows up full of gratitude, when their wife shows up um, humbly listening and asking questions, wanting to understand their perspective, and then expressing their, their firmly held, honest beliefs in love and in humility. It drives them crazy. You know why? Because if they can't provoke their wives' shame, they can't control them. If I can't make your shame greater than mine, I can't hide mine behind yours. I have seen guys grow enraged because what they actually recognize is their wife is growing powerful. Sometimes that leads to repentance. Because the safe space she's leading to create creates a safe space for him to lay down his shame and be honest in his vulnerability and need. And sometimes it doesn't. So this is good advice in all of these situations. There are times that we have to create separation. So I want to be clear that, that I'm not saying that if you're in an abusive relationship, you stay in that abusive relationship and you... That's a whole different... I'm talking about normal conflict, which it can still be really ugly and painful. But if we lead out in this way, listen, if we lead out in this way, we're going to diffuse most of the toxicity in the conflicts around us. All right, I'm going to close this there. Um, today, we are going to take our first fruits offering for our capital campaign. 
Uh, we've been working for months on this thing. I am so proud of the team and so thankful for the guys that, uh, and gals that have labored very, very diligently to, to get us to this place. And, and today is kind of that first step of, uh, of, of moving into the sacrifice, the shared sacrifice of achieving a goal together. And um, last night, uh, I got a report from Joe, who's our, our accountant, our treasurer, working on this. And he let me know that, that as of last night, we have $798,440 pledged um, to our capital campaign, which is awesome, which is awesome. Um, now, that does mean we're about $1,600 shy of actually breaking 800000 and I love round numbers, right? So if anybody wants to up their pledge, or you haven't pledged yet and you want to jump in, now's the perfect time, okay? Um, but here's what's beautiful about this. Over the next three years, we're going to keep talking about this, and we're going to keep inviting new people who come to the church to join us in the capital campaign. I'm, I'm still prayerful that we're going to reach our 1.1 million, but even if we don't, listen, this means that over the course of three years, we're, we're going to be able to pay off $720,000 which means paying it forward back through Converge, back into church planting and equipping other churches. And it's going to leave us with a very manageable debt at the end of it that I think, you know, however the Lord wants to deal with that, we'll deal with it, right? It also means we get to give away $80,000 to the cause of the gospel. That's a win, man. Shared sacrifice, shared mission. When we labor together to be a blessing, we increase our experience of that blessing. So thank you. Thank you for joining us uh, in this capital campaign. Thank you for being part of it. And, um, and this morning, man, let me just give thanks as we take our first fruits offering toward this campaign. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are a good God, that you give us good gifts, that you equip us to be generous, that you are by nature a generous God. Everything we have, you've given us, and then you simply ask us to be generous as you are generous. That as we give, you will equip the giving. As we sow, you will equip the seed for the sowing. How incredible is that? So I thank you that we get to be part of it. And that as we join in this work of generosity, we not only get to be a blessing, we get to experience a greater taste of that blessing. So this morning, Lord, bless this offering and bless those who contribute toward it. Bless our community. I pray, Lord, that we would become a truly generous community, that this wouldn't simply be about solving a problem or paying a debt. It would be about forming a heart of love at the heart of our community that moves us in response to your love to be generous. So thank you for this. I pray your rich blessing on it and those who give. In Jesus' name.